You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Well, welcome everyone again. If, uh, if you're new today to City Church, it's really good to see you. My name's Al. I'm one of the leaders here. It's my pleasure to welcome you. I hope that you've enjoyed yourself so far. Uh, if you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, but you're perhaps exploring what it might mean, what Christians believe, or you're interested in finding out a little bit more about why people get up early on Sunday and come to a building and eat bread and juice together and sing songs... Why don't you come and speak to me afterwards? We'd love to kind of help you to understand a little bit more if you so desire. Uh, we're all ears. And also it'd help us maybe if there are things about Christianity that you find to be perhaps jarring with the way that you see the world. Well, talk to us. We'd love to learn. We'd love to get better at articulating the Christian faith in the world in which we live. And um, because most of us spend our time, I guess, thinking about Christian faith and everything, then we maybe don't always have much of an alertness to what's happening. So you could help us, perhaps, even as we could maybe help you. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the music this morning, Worship by Everything But The Girl, um, or David Gray, perhaps, circa 1993. Um, it was Everything But A Girl as well, with Phil and Paul in the band. That's uh, really nice, guys. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, you know, there's quite a long list of drummer-singers, isn't there? You know, the guy from the Eagles, Stevie Wonder... Karen Carpenter, um, Phil, Collins, yeah, Phil Collins, that's right, yeah, yeah, you can feel it coming in the air. Um, anyway, thanks guys, it was, great to, it was great to be led by you this morning and some really good, I think some of the songs we've sung recently have been so rich, haven't they, so contentful. Who, who wrote that one, you did it the other week, didn't you? City of Light, okay. I don't spend a lot of time listening to Christian music, I've got to confess, but that, that's really good and I might try and find that. Anyway, okay, today we are, our th- we are th- into our third week of exploring one chapter of the book of 1 Samuel that belongs to the Old Testament. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of 1 Samuel 17 again today, there's a few things that I want to say a little bit about the way that the Bible is constructed, um, because it can help. Right? Uh, you, even if you just take a little snippet of this, that's good, but just a couple of comments, okay? When we talk about the Christian Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, that Old Testament, that collection of books... Uh, in Christian tradition, has normally been categorized by talking about the Pentateuch, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then the historical books, which is Joshua up to two kings, arguably, and include one or two chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah in there as well. And then there's wisdom books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and then there are the prophets, which is broken into the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the minor prophets, the smaller texts. That's the way that the Christian Bible has understood how the Old Testament is made up. But did you realize that the Jewish ordering of these books is a little bit different? In content, the Jewish Old Testament, or Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, is identical, really, to the Christian Old Testament. It's just ordered differently with slightly different understandings of what is going on. And so the Hebrew Bible is divided into three chunks 
called the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the law is, again, Genesis to Deuteronomy. The prophets is everything from Joshua to two kings and all the books that we think about as being the prophets. And then the writings is Chronicles and Daniel is in there in the writings and Proverbs and Psalms and all the rest of it. Sometimes you might have seen it as the Tanakh. It's called Tanakh because it's taking the first letter from the Hebrew word for law and prophets and writings. It's Torah, Nevim, and Keturim. And Tanakh, that's the way that it is organized. Now, why do you need to know all of that? And why does a book like 1 Samuel then belong to something called the prophets? Well, it's because in the Hebrew mindset... Those books that tell the story about the formation of the people of Israel and their inheriting the land and the kings and all the rest of it is history from a theological perspective. In other words, it's viewing this thing not just as a history as sort of slightly uptight 20th and later century Westerners think about history, but it's history with a God's eye view. It's about the way that this people and God's dealings with them have unfolded in the world. It has to do with God, in other words. So it's not, strictly speaking, history. And when Christians think about the Hebrew Bible or the the Christian Old Testament as being history, they have to be very careful that they're not swinging in some kind of secular notion of what history is and interpreting biblical history as though it was just some kind of ordinary history book, because it ain't. And I think there's something that we can learn from the way that the the Jewish understanding of their scriptures is understood. I think it's very, very rich, and it can help us with 1 Samuel 17 and indeed other Old Testament books. The The story of David and Saul and Goliath is best understood theologically. It's best understood as having to do with God. Now, it seems weird to say that in a Christian congregation because surely most people think, well, duh, (laughs) of course it is. But here's the thing. God doesn't actually appear as a character in the story of, of David and Goliath. There's no place in 1 Samuel 17 where God is a direct, active character who speaks, who appears, who kind of... You know, there's no angel of the Lord. He's he's not in there. Spoiler alert. I've saved you from kind of wondering about that. God doesn't appear as a character. So how is it then? How can 1 Samuel 17, how how can 1 Samuel be all about God if he's not a direct player in there? Well, it's because 1 Samuel 17 belongs to a bigger story about God and his people Israel. And that bigger story belongs to a much, much bigger story about the one creator God who is the Lord of all and how life, the universe, and everything relates to that one creator God who is the Lord of all. So that's a little bit of intro for us. As we, I'm trying, you know, I just... I can't do this all the time, but now and again I think it's important just to throw something in. Listen, guys, there's ways of thinking and, and, and wrestling with Scripture that can help us as we get into the text and can maybe sort of bat away 
funny ideas about what's going on. Okay? Anyway, let's get into 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 17 verses 17 to 23, and then we're going to work through that passage together. Jesse said to his son David, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See how your brothers fare, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left someone in charge of the sheep, took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. So here we are picking up the action in 1 Samuel 17. And David's dad sends him on this terrifying and important mission to carry seven plowmen's lunches to the front line to feed his brothers. I mean, it's not very sexy, is it? Oi, Davy boy, take these cheeses to your brothers, will you? That's a good lad. Now, don't forget... This is the same David who has been chosen by God and anointed to be king over Israel. And yet here he is, after that, acting as pack-up boy for the big brothers. Cheese boy, cheese man, cheese courier, whatever you want to call him. Why? Well, David has suddenly been brought close to the action. But is this mere happenstance? Is this just a, one of those happy accident, accidents in history that here's David and you know, his brothers are out fighting and his dad needs someone to take some, take some food and bring some word back and so David happens to be around, oh, you'll do, off you go. Well, perhaps... Or is God doing more behind David's back than he's doing in front of his face? Are the small and seemingly inconsequential moments of our lives just that? Or are they irreducible elements of what God is doing both in you and through you as his sovereign will unfolds. My hunch, based on my own personal experience, is that many Christians live 90% of their time as functional atheists, because God can surely only be working in the big and the dramatic, and how could God be working in the mundane elements of my day-to-day life? Surely not. Well, actually, surely so. Have a look at what it says about David. This is a story, after all, about David and his election, his rise to the throne. 
But it allows us perhaps to reflect on the ways of God in our own lives. It asks questions of us about what it means to perhaps be a worshipper, to be someone who is called by God. David has been chosen and anointed, but not, if you'll pardon the pun, catapulted directly into the corridors of power. I knew that you'd get that. It's about, you know, the sling, Goliath, oh, never mind. So the question is, well, how did God's elect conduct themselves? What manner of life might you expect to see in somebody like David, chosen, anointed, God's elect might perhaps be expected to perform the small tasks with willingness and care, just like David did. Look, these are the verbs. These are the verbs that are used of David in this story. David rose, and David left, and David took, and he went, and he came, and he left, and he ran, and he went, and he greeted. There's a lot of action. A lot of action. David wasn't some kind of like lazy, ambivalent, apathetic millennial guy. Oh, uh, can't we just find a deliveroo to send something to the guys at the front line? He actually takes some action. He does something. His dad asks him to do a menial job, but his anointing and calling from God has not gone to his head. Send someone else to do it. He does it. He rose and left and took and went and came and left and ran and went and greeted. He does all these things. He's not a man, clearly, frozen in the paralysis of analysis. Do you know some guys like that? Frozen by overthinking. Unable to move because it's all in the head. Can't decide. But he's neither is he just a frenetic overachiever. It's not like he's just kind of... He's not kind of a guy who sits with a sheep, necking Red Bull back, and then goes, I've got to do something. I don't think so. David is presented as a model of faithful and careful stewardship of his responsibilities. You get the feeling as you read about David that this is a guy who can be trusted. Even though he's chosen and anointed as king in the presence of his brothers, He still does the small stuff well by obeying his dad and serving his brothers. Now I wonder, are there small things that you could be doing in the meantime? God's got a great plan for my life. Yes, but what are you doing now? I went to this event once and somebody prophesied over me I'll be a prophet to the nations. Well, great. How how much are you praying at the present are you, are you, do you go to small? Do you, do you go to church? Do you go to the prayer meeting? Well, that's, that's a good start. God's spoken to me about being a leader of, of, of dozens. Oh, great. Okay, well, who's following you now? And who are you investing in? I think God's called me to be a Bible teacher. Okay, well, what books are you reading? What are you listening to? Who are you talking to? What responsibility? How are you taking responsibility for yourself in the small things that can lead to that later on? Or, or, or are you expecting that you're just waiting for the moment when you do get catapulted suddenly into something? I know it's hard. It's hard to get the energy up, the enthusiasm, isn't it, these days? It's difficult. Existential crises abound. War in Europe after however many years. Brexit. The government's a mess. 
The country's a mess. Let's all move to Spain. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> why, should I, why should I care about a job? Why should I care about it? How can I, how can I possibly dream about a house? How can I dream about bringing, a, bringing up a family? How can I dream? Can I, even, can I even imagine myself as married one day? All these kinds of questions. How can I have hope for a future? My parents had it so much better than I did. Let's not even talk about my grandparents. You can get paralyzed, friends, with fear. Paralyzed with a sense of how can it ever be different. Paralyzed just trying to overthink everything. Here's the answer. Do the small stuff. Do it well. Make some choices to do one small thing well. Don't sweat the big stuff, as it's said. That's apparently what all the young people say these days. Or maybe not. I don't know. What do you say these days? Trust, but act. Trusting in God is not inaction. Just in the same way that Sabbath is not a complete ceasing from activity. Trusting in God requires some doing at times. It requires making some positive actual steps, some choices to move into things and to trust God to lead you and to develop stuff. I think we see David doing just that. He doesn't just wait around for something to happen. He's responsive and active. Here's a quote that I like from an author called George MacDonald, and this features as one of the meditations in Celtic daily prayer. He says, What God may hereafter require of you, you must not give yourself the least trouble about. Everything he gives you to do, you must do as well as ever you can. That is the best possible preparation for what he may want you to do next. If people would, do, if people would but do what they have to do, they would always find themselves ready for what came next. I think that's good advice. Go and do likewise. Now, while David is chatting to his brothers and handing out their pack-ups, Goliath pushes through the Philistine ranks and starts up his defiant rhetoric again. And David heard. Now this is interesting, because if you read earlier on in 1 Samuel 17, we read about David going, going back and forth between the sheep and Saul. And now, for the first time, the text says David heard. Does that mean that David didn't notice Goliath over the however many days he was going backwards and forwards? Or does it mean that perhaps at this particular point something clicks? Who knows? But David hears and the fact that the text, the narrator says that he hears probably means that at this point it suddenly landed. Let's read on a little bit from verse 24. All the Israelites when they saw the man fled from him and were very much afraid. The Israelites said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. So as before, the Israelite army is 
petrified by Goliath. And notice what they say. They say, surely he has come up to defy Israel. Now that's, of course, exactly what Goliath is reported as saying in verse 10. Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When the language of the enemy is being repeated unthinkingly and uncritically on the lips of those whom he seeks to intimidate, the battle is as good as over. It's just an echo chamber. I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. He's defying the ranks of Israel. He's defying the ranks of Israel. He's defying the ranks of Israel. Is that how you react to bad news? Is that how you handle stuff that's challenging in life, in church? I heard, did you hear that? I heard that happened over there. This, but oh my goodness, oh wow. Are you a gossiper? It's kind of gossip, isn't it? Gossip is the work of the devil. Gossip can ruin a church, undermine it, hinder it. Are you being drawn into an echo chamber for the thoughts and insinuations of the enemy? Israel are. This man's come up to defy the ranks of Israel. (gasps) Shock, horror. Now sticks and stones may break my bones, but words shall never help, shall never hurt me. Hmm. Maybe. Or they might undermine you and erode your sense of identity to the point where sticks and stones aren't even necessary any longer. The Israelite troops are floundering in fear and intimidation and gossiping among themselves about an apparently great reward promised for the brave soul who dispatches Goliath. Interesting to notice, by the way, that nowhere in the story does Saul ever say those words about greatly enriching the man who kills Goliath, giving his daughter to him, and making his family free in Israel. That's not said on Saul's lips. Doesn't mean that he didn't say it, but it might be that it's just hearsay and rumor. Because they're already gossiping about what Goliath says, and now it's kind of this, this rumor of bribery has come in. Oh my goodness, well look what, they, look what the king will do for the person who does this. And the reward as it's put, is essentially money, sex, and power. He will greatly enrich the man. He will give his daughter in marriage. He will set his family free in Israel. Money, sex, power. Even politicians in the ancient Near East knew how to effectively bribe people to do their own dirty work for them. Remember, Saul was the man who Israel chose for themselves. So when Goliath said, choose a man for yourselves, there was a great big irony, because there he was, hiding, cowering in fear, just like everybody else. He was the one who was going to fight Israel's battles. And now it's become this thing of bribery, of money, sex, power. Find, find someone, anyone, just dispatch him. Such is the kind of king that Saul is. Except the bribery's not working because Goliath still lives. And now we meet David again. 
We've already met him, haven't we? Twice, in fact. We meet him in 1 Samuel 16, as I showed you the other week. But then we also meet him in chapter 17. We see him doing all that stuff, responding positively, faithfully, with urgency and diligence, doing little things well, carrying the cheese, as it were. We've met him, but we haven't heard him yet. But now we do hear him. Now we hear David's words for the first time. And the first speech in biblical narrative is really, really important because it says an awful lot about what kind of person it is. In biblical narrative, first speech is key. So it's important to pay attention to what David says. David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? But who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Some postmodern interpreters of this story have suggested cynically, in, in my opinion, that David was just a bit of a profiteer. But here he is, he's, he's an ambitious young guy who has suddenly found himself in a, a sort of serendipitous position. And now he's going to exploit the place that he's found himself in. And that's why he asks the question, what, what will be done? It's like a kind of dick doesn't mean, what will be done for the person who kills this giant Philistine? You could go down that route if you want. But if you want to interpret it that way, then you have to acknowledge that you're going to have to skew an awful lot of other details in the text that are really important. Not least the theological one. The sense that this is all about God and God's dealings and how God works and how God brought David up and rose him up and finally takes him to the throne. In this first speech of David, David becomes the first person in the whole chapter to actually mention God. Wow. And here we are, nearly 30 verses in and 40 odd days in. And there's Saul and the armies of Israel, the armies of the living God, and yet no one has thought to mention God. Can it be conceivable, friends, that in a Christian community like ours, there is some kind of weird social stigma about being the person who mentions God? Oh, don't be so ridiculous. Don't be so super spiritual. Don't you know what I'm going, how can, oh, God, This text is here to instruct us in faithful living, not just tell us a story about what David was like. How close to your lips is God? Or is he not at all? Is is it an embarrassment to speak of God? David refers to God as the living God. And it's interesting to note that that's a very rare title for God in the Bible. Believe it or not, I was surprised when I learned this. The living God sounds like something that should be just on every other page. It's it's not. It only comes up here and in one other story in the Old Testament. The exact phrase, the living God. I'm not going to tell you the Hebrew, so I can't remember it. But it only comes twice. The living God. That affords it some kind of significance here. 
When Scripture speaks about the living God, in the context that it does, it's always referring to God as a powerfully active agent who is present in the world and in what appear to be dire political realities. The living God. It's often set over and against idols, which are the work of human hands and have to be carried and set up and you know, all the rest of it. God, the powerfully active agents. David, the theologian, unashamed and unafraid and unembarrassed to be the person who finally brings God into the problem. But David also refers to Israel as the armies of the living God, whom Goliath has defied. That also is very important. A few weeks back, you might remember that I mentioned that the Israelites, when they asked for a king, that God took that as a rejection of his kingship over Israel. They wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. And having pushed God out, Israel has also forgotten its own truest identity. There are about 160 billion things that I really want to say about this today, but I can't. Apart from this, you push God out, your identity falls to pieces. And I just put that out to you today in a world where identity has been flipped upside down, where it is something that you build from the ground up, not something that you receive from God down. And church, you must be very careful to not be sucked into believing the siren voices that say that identity is the responsibility of each individual person to construct for themselves. Identity is something we receive from God in relationship with God. Israel rejected God and lost sight of its identity. David, the theologian, is the man who mentions God and puts theological reality and the identity of Israel as the people of God back on the map. We should be a people more than any other people on the face of the world who are super secure in our identity because we are a people who understand that we live fully and completely in relationship to God. And even if you're sitting and thinking, well, hang on a minute, I don't know, because we must understand that all things come from him. All things. And the world that we live in has tried to flip everything, including Christian theology, so that Christian theology is just the kind of speculations of three-pound fallen brains and people who live in the Western world. But we turn to the pages of scripture and we find a God revealed, not a God constructed. We find a God who speaks and who is a living God, who has things to say about stuff like who he is and who people are, and we need to pay attention to that. I want you to notice that there is a very close relationship between the living God, and the armies of the living God. 
Of course there is. Here they are. They're both mentioned in the same phrase, the armies of the living God, who David mentions. I don't think in any way, shape, or form that the, the writer, the storyteller, or David himself, in fact, thought that God and the people of God were one and the same thing. No, of course not. But perhaps I can give you a New Testament example that will maybe illustrate this a bit. When Saul of Tarsus is on the path to Damascus, breathing out threats and violence against the Christian church, and the risen Jesus appears to him, and he falls to the ground blinded and says, Who are you, Lord? The voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now that's funny, because I thought, reading the book of Acts, that Paul was persecuting Christians. But the risen Jesus so closely associates his own identity with that of his people that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ himself. And so to defy the armies of the living God is to defy God himself because the two are closely intertwined and you must not try and drive a wedge between them too quickly or inappropriately. You defy the armies of God, you defy God. You defy the church, you defy God. You persecute Christians, you persecute Christ. God is intimately connected, joined. We sang about it earlier. Oh, yes. That sense of closeness and joinedness to God. And David puts that all back on the map again. He's not moved by Saul's bribery. In fact, he can't believe what he's hearing. (laughs) We can see you, mate. Stand up. (laughs) Don't hide. Hello. There we go. (laughs) David can't believe what he's hearing. He's incredulous. What will be done? What what kind of reward? What? what? Hey? He can't get his head around it. You see, to David, the problem is not and can never be a greater reality than that of the living God and the living God's commitment to the people that he has called. So he speaks it. And his first words, his first speech, he says it. He calls it. And David's words do things. You know how God's words do things Don't be conned into thinking that you have to go away and work. I've got to try and apply the Bible. God's words do stuff. You speak them and you believe them and you live. Yes, you have to interpret them. Of course you do. But understand that speaking of God and that word of God and speaking truth in times where truth is hard to come by... (laughs) a radical act now I'm running out of time so let me just wrap this up and bring it home to roost for us in terms of what it might mean for us individually and corporately to perhaps become people after God's heart remember David is called a man after God's own heart beautiful and you may be wondering at that point, well, wow, why? You know, God says, I found David, a man after Well, wow, why? What, what is it about David? You know, we heard God rejected Eliab, the big brother, because, well, you know, God saw something in his heart, but we don't know. Why did, God, why did God love David so much? Well, we're not sure, but are we? 
Actually, I think there's a few things that can highlight for us what God saw in David's heart. David was diligent in the little things. We've said that already. He didn't avoid bringing God into conversation when everyone else wanted to talk about practicality. He was no pragmatist. He was a theologian. He knew God. He knew about God's dealings with his people. He knew what, what the real issues were. He resisted the temptation to do the right thing for human reward. And when the chips were down and the facts on the ground were, were seeking to undermine those realities, he spoke truth to God's people. Didn't get sucked into an echo chamber of lies and unbelief and doubts. He spoke about God. He spoke the truth about the identity of God and the people of God as well. David was a man chosen by God and anointed by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here today, is that any less true of you? Oh, that's David. Well, yes. A human being chosen by God and anointed by the Holy Spirit. I think that's every Christian, is it not? Basically. Oh, I could never do those things. Yes, you can. If I, what would Jesus do? Never mind WWJD, WWID. What am I going to do as a Christian chosen and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what you're going to do. If you're going to be a man or a woman after God's heart, you're going to do the small things well, without excuses, without prevaricating, without pointing the blame at somebody else. You're going to bring God into the conversation more often. That's what you're going to do. You're going to resist the temptation to do the right thing for reward, human reward, and you're going to trust God. And when the facts on the ground play the lie to the things that we talk about as theological realities, you will continue to speak the truth about God without wavering, without fear. And you'll believe and you will grow. And we will believe and we will grow. And our true king, the Lord Jesus, will be honored and magnified because it's to him that we draw the attention. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts before you. We thank you that you are the world's true Lord and King. <laughs> Not Michael Healy or Ben Ashman or Sam Bailey, but you. <laughs> Zachary Rose is there somewhere, probably. Lord, we trust you. We love you and we give our hearts to you. We ask that you would form us in these ways. We recognize that scripture isn't there as some repository of fairy stories as a preamble to you, but it witnesses to you and it witnesses to the life of a believer. May your spirit empower us to these kinds of things. For the sake of your name. Amen.